Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by Godfather of Sass, Jason Lemkin and myself, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC. And following our interview with the incredible Mathilde Collin at Front on Monday, we thought it was time to speak to one of the investors behind many of the great Sass companies of today. Therefore, we're thrilled to have RJ Agarwal on the show today. Now, RJ is the managing director at Bain Capital Ventures, where he focuses on early stage application software and SaaS investing. Pretty helpful for the SaaS to show, I must admit. But included in his immense portfolio are the likes of Optimizely, SendGrid, and Gainsight, just to name a few of the momentous companies he's invested in. And prior to crushing the world of investments, RJ was an early employee at Trilogy, where as head of sales and marketing, he was instrumental in growing their annual revenue to $300 million. And before we dive into the show today, do not forget to check out the beautifully newly arranged Sasta site where all the content categories are fantastically separated so you can easily choose your topic or theme and then let the SAS learning begin from there. However, back to the show today. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome RJ Agarwal at Bain Capital Ventures. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. RJ, welcome to the official Sasta podcast. It's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Harry. It's, uh, it's great to be here as well. Now, can you start us off today by giving us a kind of two to three minute synopsis of your life? It is a very hard ask, I know. Uh, and tell me how you came to be at Bain today. Uh, yeah, great. So, you know, I started my career in the startup world, did my first startup in college, and we were selling enterprise software to sales and marketing departments of small and medium businesses. It wasn't called SaaS back in those days. It was just called enterprise software. And built that business in college and then uh, joined, uh, joined a second startup um, in the mid-90s, a company called Trilogy Software down in Austin. And, and Trilogy also sold software uh, to heads of sales and marketing. Um, and we built and grew that business from zero to $300 million in revenue. And I ran the front end of that business, sales, marketing, and products. Uh, so spent eight years there with that company. And then... In 2003, I made the transition to Bain Capital Ventures, um, where I've been for the last 13 years. At Bain, I've primarily focused on early stage software investing. Over the last you know five to seven years, that's transitioned into early stage SaaS investing, where I spend the bulk of my time. What a fantastic synopsis. Wow, if, if only all my guests could do that. Um, and now I'm intrigued there by, by lots of different elements. So we'll just unpack it slightly. And we said there about SaaS yeah. versus enterprise. Now, it always slightly confuses me because surely everything we use is SaaS and enterprise is, is a very different thing for B2B uh, large corporates. Is that right? Yep. Can you help distinguish between that? Because they seem to be buzzwords thrown around. That's right. And, and, and actually, the way you express it is the correct way to express it, which is, you know, enterprise software historically has meant selling software to, to large companies and, 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 you know, not to be confused with selling to SMBs, uh, small and medium businesses that by definition are not, are not enterprises. You know, historically, when you use the term enterprise software, it t- typically meant on premise software, you know, software that you would sell in a perpetual license. It would be installed on site at the company, and then you would earn you know some kind of maintenance annual maintenance fee. And, and so the typical model was you'd sell 
a million dollars of software, that million dollars would get paid up front. And there's typically a 20% annual maintenance fee for bug fixes and support that would be paid on top. That was the, the traditional model, and it was all on-premise. So you'd have to send people you know, physically there to get the software installed and implemented and integrated and up and running. So it was also, uh, on top of all that, you know, typically a services fee as well. SaaS has enabled, uh, by virtue of being in the cloud, is that the actual implementation process and integration process is far simpler. The ability to update a piece of software is far easier. In the old days, when you had to update a piece of software, again, you had to send someone physically on-site to do some kind of migration. Now, everything's in the cloud, so you know these technologies are continuously updated. And what that means for the end customer is better technology, lower cost of ownership, much faster time to value uh, than we had back in the days of you know the '90s and, and selling enterprise software. So it's been you know it's been a great positive change for the entire industry. I think what what it's also done is enabled you know businesses that are small and medium size to take advantage of this powerful software. You know, as you could imagine, if you're a small company and you're only willing to pay a couple hundred dollars a month per piece of software, the notion of sending someone physically out to implement and install that software was totally uneconomic. But now that the software is sitting in the cloud, it can be utilized through a self-service web or mobile portal. The the customer can start getting value immediately. It now becomes economic uh, for for many classes of software to sell to that small and medium business. And, And that's opened up you know, huge markets in the software world that historically were unaddressed. Okay, so, 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 how, so how does the emergence then of, of cloud software and the ability to update and iterate on software so quickly without physical uh, people and products, how does that affect the sales process and the sales cycle? Well, I think it's affected the sales process and sales cycle in a couple profound ways. I think number one, I think for a lot of software, uh, because it's in the cloud, you can start utilizing it and getting value much quicker. Oftentimes, in a sales cycle today, the salespeople are, are actually demonstrating real software as opposed to showing a demo. Back in 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 the old old world of software, you typically showed a demo because you couldn't have that piece of software sitting on a laptop. You know, you needed a giant server, and you know, and it had to be installed on that server and customized. And so we would typically, in the trilogy days, go to a customer and show them a demo. Nowadays, I think every entrepreneur that's out demoing their software is logging in via browser and, and showing the real stuff, which I think is extremely powerful. I think number two, you don't have you know the time to values is shortened dramatically. You don't have this process of building all this on-site infrastructure and implementing, um, you know, the, the, the software is typically sitting in the cloud hosted by Amazon. So you can now scale that up and turn that on, you know, in, in, in a matter of minutes. I think the third piece that's really changed is the fact that in the old days, you used to get all your money up front. You know, you'd sell that million dollar deal. The customer would send you a million dollars wired into your bank account. That was it. You got your money. And, and so the, the onus on actually delivering value to the customer was removed, you know, as a result of this dynamic. You know, in the SaaS world, you know, you're typically paid annually or quarterly or monthly. And if the software isn't delivering value, that customer is going to move on and is going to stop paying you and they're going to switch to something else. And so I think the the focus on customer success has changed 180 degrees from 
the old world of, of enterprise software. And I think, you know, you're seeing salespeople comped on customer success. You're seeing customer success managers being involved at the front end of the sales process. You know, I was speaking to a, a very successful sales leader uh, who, who's s- scaled a, a SaaS company to, to hundreds of millions from, from zero. And he was telling me, you know, early days, you know, dealing with, with high levels of churn and they did an analysis to understand what's driving this churn, what, what, what's correlated with customers that end up churning. And what they found, which I thought was fascinating, was the number one correlation between, you know, customers that churned and customers that didn't was who the salesperson was that sold the account. Mention that anecdote as an example of the fact that, that customer success really starts with sales. And the way that the salesperson educates the customer, the way they position value, the way they set expectations, uh, the way they drive alignment, the way they get the right decision makers to buy off, all those things have to be in place for you know, a relationship to work. And I think the scrutiny and focus on success has really transformed the nature of a salesperson in the SaaS world. So you're talking about churn there, you, you know, since the lean startup, we've had a lot of, I've had a lot of SaaS founders come to me and say, you know, I'm doing the MVP and I've got, I've got it ready. Uh, it's not perfect, but here it goes. I'm releasing it. Uh, and then it's the leaky bucket where they pour users into the funnel and they come out uh, because of problems with the MVP. So where do you stand on the kind of modern iterative SaaS startup? creating not a perfect product and resulting in churn, when's the right time for SaaS companies to, to release that product without damaging that kind of churn ratios? It's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think there, when you're a young company, you have to get software out there and in the hands of users, even if it's not perfect and knowing there are going to be issues. And again, this is where I think it's so important for whoever's selling, if it's a founder selling or it's a salesperson selling, particularly in those early days that you're setting expectations that the customer understands, hey, customer, you're, you're, you're an early user of this product. It's not going to be perfect. There are going to be issues. But what you get in return is you, know, you get to really shape the future of this product and where it goes um, by being early. And, um, but I think you've got to get that product out there. You've got to get customer feedback. Um, and if you wait too long and, and, and you worry, you're too worried about making the software gold-plated before you release it, chances are you're going to miss the mark. And so I think in those early days, what's most important is achieving product market fit and, and really not worrying about the fact the software is not perfect and there are going to be bugs and issues. Maybe you haven't really implemented any kind of security features. I think all that's fine. you got to get it out there, prove that you have product market fit, prove that you know, the customer is getting real value and is willing to pay you for that value. And then once you have that then I think you can start worrying about, okay, let's get it now stable and higher quality and implement security. I think the key, though, you know, at that stage, you've got to actually fix the quality issues before you start ramping up your sales and marketing. But I'm with you 100%. You know, get the product out there. Get in the hands of customers. You're going to be selling ahead of the curve, and I think that's, that's totally fine. And this is a very hard question to answer, but I have to ask it anyway, because it is on the lips of every founder listening. And that's what does product market fit really look like? We had a recent guest say it was when someone can easily and succinctly sell a product to their boss and evaluate the value proposition of it. But what would you say then uh, product market fit looks like? Is it just pure traction? Is it revenue? It's That is a great question. Um, I, I think it really is a combination of all the things you said. I mean, I First and foremost, the way you described it, 
I think is, is, is a fantastic descriptor of product market fit, which is can every single person in the company in one or two sentences succinctly and simply articulate the value proposition? And does that mirror exactly what the customer says is the value they're getting? Oftentimes it's too easy. Find some pain at customer one and you solve that pain. Then you go to customer two and their pain is slightly different and solve that problem. You go to customer three and their problem is a little bit different. You solve their problem. And in your own minds, you think, okay, we've got product market fit, but each customer is saying something very different. Each employee selling it is saying something you know different. So I think having that simple, consistent clarity around the value proposition, I think, is number one. Number two, the customer sees real value from your product that is highly differentiated from any alternative. Um, oftentimes what you find you deliver a piece of software to the customer, they're getting value. They're, they're getting value sh- just from the sheer act of doing something about that problem. In fact, there may be three other vendors that would give them the same value. They happen to choose yours. And so I think that notion of highly differentiated value um, is really important. I think number three is for that decision maker, whoever the decision maker you're selling to is your initiative a top three initiative if it's a you know number four number five or number six then i think it's a nice to have and you know we've lived through an environment over the last three years where it's been a frothy economy and so people are more willing to buy software you know we're now in a period where potentially that's changing and and they're going to be less willing to buy software but if you're in the top three priorities of a decision maker in good times and in bad times they're going to need your software and they're going to want your software and then the last uh, criteria I would say is the amount they're willing to pay you relative to how hard it is to sell it. Does that do those economics work? You know, so if it's a big six month enterprise sale, but they're willing to pay you two hundred thousand dollars, okay, that math works. If it's you know uh, a customer is only willing to pay you a thousand dollars a year, but you can close somebody in one phone call with an inside sales force. Okay, those those economics work. Where you get upside down is where it's a six month sales cycle, and the customer's willing to pay you thirty thousand a year. That's not going to scale. And so, while there may be you know product market fit from a value proposition and differentiation standpoint, you don't have a viable business and, and a sustainable business. So, I think those four things are the things we look for when trying to ascertain has a company achieved product market fit. And then the repeatability and data points and traction are all evidence to support uh, that you've, you've solved those four issues. But those are the four questions that we ask. And you said there about presenting clear and tangible value to the user. One, one, one interesting aspect that Shadul Shah, a recent guest from Index, brought up was the importance and emphasis that he places on time to value. How much of a role does time to value play in your decision-making process? You know, with, with some uh, marketplaces or kind of more consumery startups where content's required or data's required, the the network effects take time for the advantages to be produced. Does that does the time to value influence your decisions? I think the time to value is really a function of the nature of the problem you're trying to solve. I mean, I think if you're solving something that is a core system of record, fundamentally changing the workflow of hundreds or thousands of people inside an organization, it's going to take longer to deliver value. The customer recognizes it and um, they're prepared to, to go through those steps. Uh, if you're selling kind of a lightweight application 
where you might have a single user using it, you know, the time to value has to be very quick. So I think it's, you know, the, the short answer is in general, time to value matters a lot. And you want to be able to deliver value to the customer very quickly because many times churn happens because from the day the customer signs it to the day they implement it, it takes too long and they either lose heart or the decision maker moves on or all kinds of things can happen in that intervening period. But I also think the, the, how you measure time to value is highly dependent on the nature and complexity of the problem you're trying to solve. And if it's okay with you, we're going to dive into a, a round called the 60 second Sasta. So I say, okay. so I say a statement and you've got 60 seconds to answer it. Okay. Okay. So building a system of record, talk to me. System of record is the easiest, most reliable way to build a billion dollar company, in my opinion, because at the end of the day, a system of record is a heart and soul of a business process. It's a data repository of proprietary company information. It's the place that hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of workers are interacting every single day. It's incredibly valuable. It's hard to rip out. It's the ideal state of any SaaS company that's starting out. That's where you want to be. That's where, that, that, that is the ultimate goal. And then the 10 billion opportunity in marketing. Talk to me about MarTech. If you look at the history of enterprise software and SaaS software, every function in the enterprise is produced a $10 billion company. In HR, you have Workday and SuccessFactors uh, and, and PeopleSoft. In manufacturing, you have SAP and Bond and Finance, you have Oracle and Intuit. In sales, you have Siebel Systems and Salesforce.com. In marketing, we've not yet had that $10 billion winner. And I think that that's going to change. I think someone is going to build the system of record for marketing, the CRM for the marketeer, um, and that's going to happen. And I think that opportunity is a, is a massive one. And then establishing a sales cadence in the early days. I think establishing a sales cadence in the early days is, is making sure that you can transition the company from founders selling the product to having mere mortals sell the product. At the end of the day, it's all about repeatability and scalability. Founders are superhuman people. There's only one or two of them in a company. And so if you really want to build a $100 million, billion-dollar company, you need great people but mere mortals to be able to sell this product. And so that's, that's critical in those early days to make that transition. And then we're going to move into a final question where it's a longer form, so don't worry, there's no countdown on you. But we, we mentioned the customer success intrusion into kind of the sales process of, of software now. And there's much talk, obviously, with the evolution of content marketing into that. So how do they interplay together? Because content marketers now are also salesmen in a kind of non-direct way. So a customer success as well? Well, I think it's really comes down to this notion of, of customer centricity or account centricity. You know, at the end of the day, you've got to think about this customer holistically through that entire journey. And if you think about the systems that have been in place today, CRM or marketing automation, you know, the, these systems break down the problem into these individual nuggets like opportunities or leads or clicks you know, in the funnel. You know, I think the most successful companies are able to roll that up into a more holistic view of the, of the customer. And so at the front end, that means being able to personalize the content uh, for who that prospective customer is what industry they're in, what geography they're in, what size they are, what particular problem they're trying to solve. It means showing them the appropriate content at each step in their buying journey. You know, in sales, it means setting the expectations correctly, not overselling, aligning you know, their goals you know, with the solution that, that you're selling. 
And then in customer success, it's, it's really making sure that that customer is receiving value from your solution every week, every day, every month, um, and that the senior executives in the company you know, recognize and are aware of the value that, that you're creating. And so the, I think the key throughout this end-to-end process is having that notion of customer centricity and, and managing that entire journey from beginning to end. I think the great companies and the most successful companies are able to do that. And culturally, you know, the, the, the entire company you know, has, that, has that view and has that DNA. And it's hard to do. Uh, it's easy to get broken down in your silos and have marketing focus on clicks and sales focus on opportunities and customer success focus on churn and, and get down in the tactical metrics, have engineering focus on you know, getting the code out but it really comes down to having that holistic 360-degree view of the customer from beginning to end. Well, RJ, thank you so much for giving up the time today to be on the show. It was absolutely fantastic to hear your thoughts on the kind of full-stack sales process and the development of it. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Harry, thanks uh, thanks for having me. It's been great and um, really appreciate uh, you having me as a guest. Please hang up and try again. What a phenomenal deep dive that was with RJ on the evolution of customer success and what it really means to have product market fit as an early stage SaaS startup. And if you're loving the show, then do head over to sasta.com where you can find a whole load of articles on everything to do with SaaS, from hiring to traction to growth. And if you're loving the show, then you can also follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings. That's at H Stebbings with two B's and I'm so delighted to announce that on Monday we will have Mark Woodward CEO at Invoker on the show and Mark was recently featured on Mark Suster's Both Sides of the Table blog post where they discussed the recent fundraising climate and Invoker's recent fundraise and so we cannot wait to bring that to you on Monday thank you so much as always for your continued support and we look forward to seeing you on Monday